This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions about anything or everything that's on your heart and mind. If I don't know the answer, I'll just tell you I don't know it, and then we'll figure it out later. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. That's area code 210-340-9585. If you live outside the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email your questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app and send them in that way. If you're driving in your car on the busy streets, please be careful. But the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now button and then everything else is hands-free and you'll be able to be connected directly to our studio producer. Because it's Tuesday, we don't have a lot going on, so we get right to the questions. One more time, 340-9585. My first question comes from our email inbox from Kirby. Is Jeremiah 31 a millennial prophecy, and can you explain the meaning of verse 22, a woman will surround a man, please? Kirby, a couple of things. Uh, It's not exclusively a millennial prophecy, but it does go in to um, the millennium, of course. Um, the idea here is that uh, actually from, from, from the last chapter, chapter 30, the end tells us this is for the latter days. So we would say the last days, but uh, to a Jewish mindset, the, those latter days would be broken up into stages. Here's what I mean. Um, Jeremiah was writing from Jerusalem uh, at a time when Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, was taking different groups of people over three specific exiles uh, into captivity in Babylon. He'd start off with the best and the brightest. That was the Daniel, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego group. Um, then they would continue bringing more and more people. Uh, the people, really, that were left behind in Jerusalem to whom Jeremiah was prophesying uh, were the old people or the mentally ill people. They were, they were uh, uh, people that simply weren't attractive to the Babylonians. So he was writing, and imagine how horribly discouraging it would have been Jews were to believe that God had deserted them, that his promises had been broken, all hope would be dashed. And so Jeremiah is given this prophecy by God, but he tells him that Israel's going to be fine. 
but it's going to be at a later time, we call it again, the last days. So yes, it is about the millennium, but also in the Great Tribulation, um, and and the, the circumstances of the prophecy are kind of mixed up uh, within the passages. Now, regarding verse 22, woman shall surround a man, or uh, I think the King James says shall encompass a man, uh, is one of the most difficult phrases in all of the Old Testament to translate. Um, the best understanding is that it's a promise that Israel will be so blessed and secure in God's restoration. That would be a reference to the millennial reign. That even the women among them could protect the men and the people as a whole. So that's what he's saying. Um, a woman protects uh, a man. Um, that would be would be unheard of. Women didn't do those things, but um, it, it's rightly, I think, thought of um, signifying the absolute security that Israel will enjoy during that time. Uh, men will be able to go about and do their work um, because the risk of attack will be so minimal that security can safely be left to those who are weaker physically. And, of course, that's the reference to women. Having said that, uh, Kirby, uh, there's no way that we can be sure of of the translation. It's just one of those phrases that's really, really difficult to translate. So going to have to be a question on that one. Kirby, thank you. Appreciate the question. Here is a question from our mobile from. Oh, this is the one I wanted to do first. Rich, I told you I'd do this today to start the program, and I forgot. Uh, his question yesterday, right at the end of the program, was what should a believer do practically to know and understand the will of God? Um, Rich, what I didn't have time to say yesterday was that to to know the will of God, I, I, you, you've got to be a man uh, of the Word. It's just that simple. To understand it, you've got to obey it. You see, sometimes, in fact, in my life, many times, the will of God is not understandable. God asks me to do things that I know are in his will, but they make no earthly sense at all. And the only way you'll ever understand those things is to be obedient in them and let the Lord bless you. So we should do practically, be in the word, and then be obedient to whatever he tells you to do. Not asking questions, not waiting for whys, no Gideon fleeces, no waiting for open doors or closed doors, but just be obedient when God calls. Another way that we can know the will of God is to be obedient to the will of God that we do know. I think most of us, Rich, when we are trying to figure out the will of God. We're looking for the long-term will of God. God, what am I called to do? Where am I going to do it? Uh, what's going to happen in the future? Those kind of things. That's not the the way to understand the will of God. In fact, it's a way to ensure that you'll never understand the will of God. So we do the will of God now. In our day-to-day, minute-by-minute lives, no matter how mundane, no matter how simple it seems, the will of God is that we would walk filled with the Spirit. The will of God is that we would flee from sexual immorality. The will of God is that we would refrain from, of course, jesting. I was um, in the gym with a with a, a believer um, just last week, 
And uh, he says, oh, you're going to have to excuse me. I've just got a really bad habit. I love the Lord, but I've got a bad habit. Uh, I have a, an ugly mouth. And I said, but you know that's not the will of God, so the only way that you can know and understand the will of God is to be obedient. And sometimes we give ourselves a pass, Rich, on those things. So whatever it is, to, to forgive others as we've been forgiven by God, to, 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 to drink moderately, if at all, um, not to be angry, but, but instead to, to exhibit the fruits of the Spirit. If we're not doing those things, Paul says, rejoice always, I say it again to you, rejoice if we're not grateful Christians. With thanksgiving, make our request known to God. If we're not grateful for what he's done, then we're not in his will. So knowing the will of God depends on the word, but, but also to understand it means that we do what we are able to understand and we're obedient. It's very important that we understand that, that the key to the future It's doing the will of God today. Whatever it is you know, do that. Do it with a grateful heart. And God, Rich, will give you sort of the rest of the story at another time. 340-9585 for your live calls. We'd love to have them early in the program rather than all at the end. Here is uh, another question from our email inbox. This says, what is your opinion? Uh, What, in your opinion, are the best Bible translations? Um... The best Bible translation is the one that you'll read. I, I'm not trying to evade the, the question. Uh, I, I think far and away the best New Testament translation is the 1984 uh, uh, edition of the of the NIV. Um, not so with the Old Testament. I think with the Old Testament there are superior translations. Um, but, but I think that's one of the reasons why computer Bible study programs are so helpful because there are so many... Uh, different translations that are available. Now, Rich, because of the um, scarcity of 1984 NIVs, I've been threatening um, our church for a long time. I don't want anybody to have the 2011 NIV. It's horrible, horrible, horrible. But because the 1984 version is getting harder and harder and harder to find, I've been telling our church for, I don't know, five years now that eventually we're going to change because I don't want anybody buying those bad NIVs. Uh, And we just haven't done it because nothing has ever really made me as comfortable. Now, I will say this. I have been reading a lot out of the New Living Translation for the New Testament, and I love it. Um, I I think it's not only easy to read, but it's, it's written in such a way that we understand the context. And it's written in plain sense. I, I, I've been very, very impressed and blessed by the New Living Translation. Now, before I make a decision to change, my thought process, Rich, is, well, now i got to dig into the Old Testament and see if it is uh, uh, equally blessable. Uh, and if that's the case, eventually that's what we'll be doing here at Calvary Chapel. Uh, but all of the Bible translations um, have great value. The the King James, I guess, remains my favorite because that's the Bible I had when uh, I first got saved. Not only that, but it's so easy to memorize. The language is so memorable. Um, I think most of you know I have impaired vision. 
And so there's times when I can't look at, at my notes. I can't see them. Um, I'll start quoting from memory, and that's when King James comes out. That's how memorable it is. Paula, uh, her translation, and she loves it, is the new King James, and uh, I have no problem with that. So uh, I, I just think the one that you will read is the best one. I don't like the paraphrases. I don't like the message. I don't uh, like, except for on rare occasions, the Living Bible. I wouldn't. I would never study from the Living Bible. But sometimes it really, really says exactly the right thing. Uh, but but the best one, which is the one that you're going to read. Thank you very, very much for your patience. Let's go to Jimmy calling from San Antonio on line one. Jimmy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Can you hear me? I can hear you fine, can Jimmy. You? Okay, I'm sorry. Okay, um, I have this friend, and and she's a woman, and she, she says she's able, but she still wants to sleep around. And I told her, that's not the will of God. You know, uh, I know you're divorced, you're lonely, and all this, but, you know, and she's offered it to me. And I said, no, I can't because I'm married. Even though I'm going through the situation in my marriage, I still need to honor God first. And uh, she said, I don't understand. You look at God differently than I do. I said, no, I look at his word, and I know what his word says, and it says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Or fornication, and I'm not gonna, and, and I'm not gonna, you know. We all go through temptation in this world of the flesh, but I have to honor His word first. And he said, "Well, that's ridiculous." He said, "That's ridiculous." I said, "No, are you saved?" I said, "Are you saved?" Because I said, "She says yes, I am." But then, then you can't. How can you be saved and then think it's okay to do it? You see what I'm saying? And I, and I pray for her. I do. I said, look. So, well, she says, well, you do what you want to do, and I do what I want to do. Oh, that's fine. That's fine. You can do what you want to do. But I'm telling you the truth. Yeah. I don't know what to say. Hard stuff. I got other things. I have to do that. I got other things. I'll ask you later. And, yeah, and you know, I'm, I'm just trying to say, I mean, we, I, I go through temptation, too, because, you know, my wife is not very submissive and all that, but I can't dishonor God. For, I mean, I told her, God is my first love, and I'm learning, and I've, as I'm growing, because I have this new church, remember, you said to find a church that preaches the gospel and all that. So as I grow with God more, I understand more His Word. Yeah. And I grow. Jimmy, thank you. I'll, I'll address this. Thank you very, very much. Um, Jimmy, a couple of things. You know, when... when, when um, David sinned against God and was confronted by Nathan. He said, against thee and thee only have I sinned, O God. Um, too often people in the world that we live in create a God of their own making. Let me tell you a couple of things about this woman. First, she is no friend. This is a woman that you should not be anywhere in the neighborhood of. Um, that may sound harsh to you, but... Uh, she has let you know that she continues plans to continue to sin. Uh, you are a married man, regardless of the issues in your marriage. But uh, this is not a friend. This is a woman that you should have absolutely zero contact with, period. End of statement. The second thing I want you to know about is that this is no believer. This is not a Christian. Galatians chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6 both say that people who live 
uh, lifestyles that she's advocating will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so she needs to get saved. Now, in your discussion with her, uh, you were you were evangelizing you were trying to witness to her. That's great. But now that's all done. And um, when, when she said, well, I just don't understand that. That's silly. She can't understand it because she doesn't have the things of God first and foremost in her heart. Now, she may make herself feel better. God wants me to be happy. Uh, there's no reason not to do this. I mean, we live in the 21st century. Everybody does it. Um, but you stick to your guns. I know you will. At the same time, um, you need... If if I were you, the first thing I would do if a woman confronted me like that is I would go directly to Paula and tell her. And then I would let Paula know that I, if you ever see that woman around me at the gym or wherever it is we go, then, then I don't... Uh, then you come and rescue me. You take over. Simply because I, I, I don't want to be in a position where I could be tempted. I don't want to be in a position, certainly, where I could be compromised. And sometimes, even guilt by association. Other people know this woman and how she's living. So, uh, pray for her. Um, but at the same time, Jimmy, by all means, please, 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 avoid her. Thanks for the phone call, Jimmy. I appreciate it very, very much. It is so sad to me, so very sad to me, that people um, will sin and blame God for it. They'll just willfully, rebelliously sin and convince themselves God's okay with it when, of course, we know that nothing could be farther from the truth. Thank you, Jimmy. Good to hear from you again. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Oscar wants to say or ask, I know Jesus is God, but there are some passages that seem to teach that Jesus is less than God. Can you explain that to me? Uh, I can, Oscar. The passage is most notably uh, Philippians chapter 2. Uh, it talks about the, the, the subjugation of Jesus to the will of his Father. Jesus says, the Father is greater than I uh, in the Gospels. Um, but, but that's only positionally while he's here on earth. Uh, he is God, of course. Uh, in Philippians 2 passage, it says he considered equality with God not to be held on to. Um, the, the implication that it's a willing and eager letting go of of his position as Almighty God to, to, to buy your soul and mine. Um, so it's, it's only those passages which indicate um, order. The Father is greater than I. But then he says, all judgment has been granted to me by the Father. So he's not less than because he's completely equal to. But in his incarnation, and this is impossible for us to truly grasp the depth of, but in his incarnation, um, he lets go of everything, empties himself and became nothing. Even to the point, and Oscar, this always kills me. I just, I, I can't really wrap my mind around this, but Jesus said, I only say what I hear my father say. I only do what I see my father do. In other words, on this earth, Jesus never had an independent thought. He acted in complete unity with the Father. In writing to the Corinthians, he talks about the order of the church, just as, as the Father is the head of the Son, the Son is the head of the church. 
And he uses those passages to talk about how we establish order in the church. And there has to be order. There has to be rules. So while he willingly, um, eagerly subjugated his power, it didn't make him any less than God the Father or God the Holy Spirit. So I hope that makes sense to you. Jesus walked in obedience. He did it as an example for us. If he walked in obedience, if he emptied himself, then we can walk in obedience and empty ourselves and submit to the, the, the will of our Lord in, in, in our daily lives. We can walk according to the Holy Spirit just like he did when he was here. So he showed us how to do it. And that's why that Philippians 2 passage begins in verse 5. He says, uh, Our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who considered equality with God not to be grasped. He humbled himself even to death, death on a cross. So that's what it means, Oscar. He is God. They are completely equal. Now remember that Jesus is still the God-man. He didn't stop being human when he went to heaven. He still is in a physical, resurrected, glorified body. So in substance, he's not like the Father or the Holy Spirit. He's just like you and me in, in a physical body. But he is every bit of God. Here is a question from Doug. Why do you think Satan rebelled against God? Doug, because we're not told, uh, there's no way to know for sure. Um, All we know is that there was a rebellion uh, in which Satan convinced a third of God's angels. Now, that's an innumerable number. Um, But two-thirds of them remained faithful to their first estate. Um, All we know is that it happened. We don't have any details. Now, I have an opinion. I really do, and, and to me, nothing makes more sense than this, but that doesn't mean it's right. It's just my opinion and your opinion, Doug, and mine are of equal value here. But I personally think that Satan's rebellion against God happened immediately following God making Adam and Eve. God made man, male and female, in his own image, And God said, it's very good. I think up to that point, Lucifer, who was God's brightest and most beautiful creation, the bright morning star, he was called, suddenly he sees this thing, which according to Ephesians 2.10, was God's best work, his work of art, his, his expression of poetry. Adam and Eve. And I think Lucifer became jealous. I think it so delighted him to deceive Eve and then to see Adam fall for that reason. But again, just my own opinion. I personally think that that's when the rebellion occurred. Uh, And I'm probably wrong, but those are the kind of things that we don't get answers to. Thank you, Doug. Uh, we've got a few more minutes left in this half of the program. We'd love your live calls and questions. If you have any um, thing going on, your, anything on your mind or going through your heart, here's a question from Sheila. 
Uh, Pastor Ann, was Ellen G. White a prophet? No, she, well, innocent, she was a false prophet, which means she was not a prophet at all, not a prophet of God. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Ellen G. White is the founder of the Seventh-day Adventist movement, and uh, the Seventh-day Adventists are not... Uh, in many cases, um, um, Orthodox Christians, and I don't mean Orthodox in a religious sense, but Orthodox in the fundamental sense. Uh, there are some Seventh-day Adventists who, who are, but by and large, I wouldn't say that's the case. Uh, and Ellen G. White was the perpetrator of all of the lies, all of the legalism. Um, her, her teachings have ruined countless lives countless lives throughout our history as a church. Um, So no, she was not a prophet in any stretch of the imagination. Avoid anything and everything that she says. I don't know if I'll get to it today, but I've got another uh, Seventh-day Adventist question or question about a Seventh-day Adventist pastor. We'll maybe get to that a little bit later. 210-340-9585, 210-340-9585 for your live calls and questions or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Uh, those of you ladies who watched the Sweet Summer Devotion last night that Paula did, I uh, hope you enjoyed it. But remember, uh, keep the ladies in prayer. Sarah Green will be teaching or sharing her heart next Monday. And I promise you, you'll be blessed. Sorry at the gym today and she's ready. We've got 30 minutes left in the Tuesday program, 340-9585. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back. We've got 30 minutes left in the program. Plenty of time for your live calls and questions at 340-9585. Here's a question from Charles. Charles says, why is the Christian view of heaven so narrow? What about people who are raised in other religions. Charles, um, I'm assuming you're a believer asking this question and, and maybe a new believer, but but don't take this personal. But this kind of question uh, always frustrates me a little bit. It frustrates me because the, 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 the biblical view of heaven is so, so broad. It's so all-encompassing. There's not a single person on this planet who has to go to hell? Not a single person. Jesus, when he was talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he laid out the problem. We're all born condemned. We're born with a sin nature because we sin, we're separated from God. So nobody deserves heaven. And a question like this, Charles, sort of implies that we deserve heaven, especially if we're nice people, or in your view, people raised in different religions are just trying to be good and they're believing what they believe. But you see, that's the problem. We're all born condemned. And that God would let any of us into heaven is nothing more than an act of marvelous grace. Now, Jesus said the road to heaven is narrow, but here's why, because few find it. It's not like it wouldn't hold everybody if people would believe. 
But that well-traveled road, that broad road that leads to destruction, that's the one people choose to walk on. And I don't think the view of heaven from a biblical perspective is near at all when God says, Come unto me, all you who are, are, are burdened and heavy laden. For whosoever believes. I mean, that's about as broad as you can possibly get. Now, here's the reason that only born-again Christians are going to be in heaven. Now, I I didn't say religious people. I didn't say good people. Only born-again Christians are going to be in heaven. Now, every time I say that, people get angry with me. But the reason is, as straightforward as it can be, only born-again Christians have had their sins forgiven. And when we stand before the Lord on the day of judgment, all judgment has been granted unto me by my Father, Jesus said. So when the world stands before Jesus, we have two choices. We can stand before him on the basis of what we have done in our lives, or we can stand before him on the basis of what he did for us. As for me, Charles, I want to get to heaven and, you know, somebody says, well, why should you go to heaven? Well, the answer is simple. Jesus died for my sins. I'm perfect. The man or the woman who is still in their sin is a man or a woman who made the wrong choice. They're going to stand before God naked. Do you remember in the Garden of Eden, Charles, when right after the fall, Adam and Eve were hiding from the Lord. Adam, Adam, where art thou, Adam, the King James says. Now, God knew exactly where they were. He was asking the question to get them to repent, and he confessed his sin. The woman that you gave me was deceived. She ate, and I ate with her. And they discovered they were naked. It's an amazing thing to think about the perfection of the garden, walking in the cool of that garden with God day after day. And we read it like it was on the first day or the second day. That's not the case. And yet they still made the woeful choice to sin. And because Adam is our federal head, we all inherited the sin nature. And yet God let them in. Why? Because they repented. They confessed. That's all we have to do. So I would beg to differ. I think the view of heaven from a biblical perspective is so broad it's hard to miss. I always tell our church here, Charles, that Jesus makes it so hard to get into hell that we have to literally step over his dead body to do it. I think that's very generous of him. I don't deserve heaven, but I guarantee you I'm going to be there. So I think God, again, is being very generous. Regarding people that are raised in different religions, um, that's kind of a, a, a dishonest argument, Charles. Here's the thing. Everybody who's ever lived can can see that there is a God. I know we have a lot of people that say, oh, you can't prove God, you can't see God, I can't believe in God. Uh, all they have to do is look around. Paul says our conscience confirms there's a God. The heavens declare the glory of God. We know that for the whole world, the law of Moses revealed the character of God. 
So everybody's without excuse. Now, here's the thing that we forget. If you serve a God, now you, you have somebody saying, well, well, I believe that my, my dog is a God or my cat is a God. They owe it. If they're going to be intellectually honest, they owe it to themselves to find out whether or not that's true. If Jesus isn't God, I want to know. That's why I spent so much time trying to find out for sure about this this Bible. Is it really the Word of God? And can I count on, depend on those promises? So if I am a Roman Catholic and I believe that being a Catholic is the way to heaven, I better find out if it's true. And there better be an objective measurement. And there is the Word. If I'm a Muslim, and I believe that Muhammad is the way to heaven. I'd better find out that there's some evidence, not just what people have believed for a long time, because people always believe easy things, the lies. I'd better find out. Well, the same thing is true of any other religion. Intellectually honest people will find out if what they believe is real. Now, throw away tradition. I'll throw it. They want to know: Is it true? And we, as Christians, have an objective standard of measurement. I know what I believe is true because Jesus, as predicted, was killed, and he didn't stay dead. So, Charles, it's very important. When you're talking about people raised in other religions, well, you know, people don't have a chance. That's the way their parents raised them. That's what happened to Abraham, and look what happened to him. 340-9585. Let's go to Jose on line one from San Antonio. Jose, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Uh, hi, Pastor Ron. I called you yesterday. Hi, Jose. I called you yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm top sinner. <laughs> lately, l- lately, I've been listening to a lot of pastors. Uh, you might be familiar with them. <clears throat> David Jeremiah, mm-hmm. Tony Evans, uh, mm-hmm. Paul Shepard, Raul Reese, uh, uh, Ray Brown from San Antonio. Okay. Uh, can I get your take on them? Uh, I'm I'm lost. Okay, I, I can, Jose. I, I can I can help you with that. Um, I, I do not know personally Ray Brown. Um, I find him difficult to listen to only because of his style. It's just something that's it's to me. It's not teaching, but there's no doubt that he is a believer. And I've never really found fault in the things that he said. I, I haven't listened to him a whole lot, and I don't know him personally. So uh, if if he's your style. Then, then I'm sure he's he's going to be just fine. Um, the others, Paul Shepard, I think is one of the most gifted Bible teachers um, that we have. I, I, he's had some problems in his personal life in the past. I I hope and pray that all that's well. But he is a wonderfully gifted teacher. Um, the other two I know, um, Raul Reese, of course, is a friend. We've had him here at our church, and uh, um, a different style than I've got for sure. But but I think. Uh, somebody that's uh, dependable and, and worth listening to. And David Jeremiah, who I know um, uh, less well than than I know uh, Raul, uh, David Jeremiah is, is rock solid. Um, 
um, I, I just I've never found anything that he said that that I would have any question with. So uh, I have no problem at all with with the, the men that you mentioned. I think uh, listening to different pastors with different styles is fine. Uh, they're they're orthodox Christians. By that I mean fundamentally orthodox. Uh, and and uh, I think listening to them can help you. Can I say something else, Jose? You told me yesterday you were a, a pretty new believer. Uh, when I was a new believer, I listened to everybody. And what the Lord used that to do in me was to teach me discernment. He, he taught me to be a Berean in the sense that when I would listen to the things that they were saying, I'd go check them out to see if they were true. I wanted them to be true. In the process, I found out that a whole lot of people that I was listening to weren't telling me the truth. But it's a good thing to listen, to absorb, as long as you're also studying your Bible for yourself. I think too often in our Internet culture, with the the, the prevalence of radio programs, uh, uh, not only on the radio but online, uh, I think sometimes we substitute Bible study for, for that. We listen instead of studying for our, ourselves. What I would ask you to do, Jose is to to dig in. Don't be frustrated um, with stuff that you don't understand. You know what I did, Jose, when I was a, a, a young believer? Um, I always kept, an, right here on my desk, I've got a yellow legal pad sitting right next to me. I've done this from my days in business before I was ever saved. And I have that yellow legal pad to the right of my Bible, have my Bible open, and anything I didn't understand, I would just make a note. What is this? Or I don't understand this and make a note of it. And then as I kept reading, the Lord would give me some light on those things. And then when I would listen to other Bible teachers, and I went to a lot of different churches, I couldn't get enough, and I listened to everybody that I could get a hold of on, on the radio. We didn't have internet back then. But uh, everything I could I could get a hold of uh, on the radio. And I, I began to develop a sense of discernment. And God wants you to have that sense of discernment. I promise you, he'll give it to you. So you keep listening. And, and uh, uh, I think all four of the men that you, you asked about are, are great examples. They're just different. You asked about one other, and I, I forgot that for a moment. I want to touch on him, and that's Tony Evans. And uh, Tony Evans is just another who's rock solid. Um, um, I love listening to Tony Evans. Um, especially uh, you can get him online when he's answering questions and things like that. But but Tony Evans is an impeccable uh, reputation, and uh, he, he's somebody that you could listen to uh, without any fear of all. Uh, doctrinally, he would differ from me in a couple of minor things, but uh, those things are so minor that they really don't uh, have, have uh, any merit at all. You can listen without worrying about it at all. So, Jose, just as long as you're reading your Bible yourself, you go through the Bible, you let God speak to you, you make note of the things that you don't understand, and then what will happen is that you'll start getting answers to those questions, and you'll start learning to listen to the voice of God as he's speaking to you through the Word of God, and then all of those men's Bible studies will grow even richer in your life. So, Jose, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Again, stay curious. Let's go to Ray calling on line two. Ray, thanks for holding. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Um, 
I'm sorry to give you these goofy, silly kind of questions, but uh, <laughs> as, as I was listening to you, the yellow pad in my mind was going crazy. Um, the, the, the idea uh, that had crossed was that uh, why on earth, well, actually before earth, you know, Genesis, why would uh, God uh, make the angels, I guess, to, you know, glorify him and enjoy their praise and glory and all? And, and when we speak of God in that general term, even though we know it's God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, mm -hmm. um, I'm having a hard time distinguishing, um, like, uh, for instance, in walking with uh, uh, the in the garden, you know, uh, God, uh, was Jesus there, or were, 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 was the Holy Spirit and Jesus up there just glorifying and, you know, just... It's all kinds of silly things, uh, but trying to seek and understand and know what, since we're made in His image, uh, I'm I'm puzzled on so many things. I can't even get them all out in this short amount of time we have. So, anything you, you can shed on that would be grateful. Okay, I can, Ray. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, um, First and foremost, God is a big picture guy. <laughs> and, and I say that reverentially. Why would he make the angels? Um, well, because God knew that angels would be ministering spirits. Uh, it was part of God's plan, and his ways are not our ways. So why would he do things like that? And you wonder about God walking in the cool of the garden. We have to remember that before the fall... God and Adam and Eve could have perfect fellowship because they were unfallen. It's hard for us to even imagine an unfallen state. In fact, it's impossible for us to imagine an unfallen state. So God was in the garden with Adam and Eve until sin entered the world. Now, was it the Father? Was it the Son? Was it the Holy Spirit? The answer to that question is yes, it was all three. You know, the voice of God, the, 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 the manifestation of God. We know after this fall, Ray, that everybody who saw the Lord saw Jesus. That's the only way you can see God. No man can see God and live. He lives in unapproachable light. But Jesus came in pre-incarnate appearances called Theophanies or Christophanies to reveal the Father. When Isaiah, in chapter 6 of his prophecy, I saw the throne of God. I saw the angels. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. John chapter 12 tells us he saw Jesus. We know that Gideon, we know that Samson's parents, we know that Abraham and Sarah saw Jesus, the definite article, angel of the Lord. Um, God passed by when Abraham offered sacrifices to him. Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. So when people see God, they saw Jesus after the fall. But before in the Garden of Eden, when they saw God, they saw the Father, they saw the Son, they saw the Holy Spirit. And remember, that's just two of them. 
until they were expelled from the garden. Then everything changed. Why? Because sin entered the world. So these aren't things that we have to wrestle with as much as we have to read them and accept them, Ray, for precisely what they say. Take them at face value. Just remember that the only way you and I could have ever seen God was for Jesus to become one of us. We can't become him so he became us. Why? Because he wanted fellowship with mankind from the very beginning. And you didn't ask this question, but it's sort of assumed in a question like this. Well, why would God create the angels who are going to fall? Why would God create humans who aren't going to believe and end up spending eternity in hell? Because God is responsible for creating everything. Now, God only directly created Adam and Eve. Everyone who has ever born since then was a product of the process of creation. And God lets people live. He reaches out to them, even if he knows, because he knows everything, that they're not going to respond to him. He makes them and blesses. Because that's who he is. That's exactly who he is. So, Ray, I hope that makes sense to you a little bit. That's one of those things sometimes we worry a little bit too much about stuff that there aren't any answers. Here is a question from Randy. He says, uh, Pastor Ron, should we confess our sins just to God or to other people also? Randy, uh, we should confess our sins, of course, to God, and we need to be as specific as we can. You know, I get up in the morning, and one of my goals in life is to keep short accounts with, with the Lord. So before I go to bed at night, I ask God to forgive me of my sins. If they're specific sins, then I'm very specific in asking. But I, I want to leave no stone unturned, so Lord, forgive me of my sins. I wake up in the morning, I'm pretty sure I haven't done anything terrible while I sleep. So I get up in the morning and again, Lord, forgive me of my sins and walk with me today. Invite him into my life. So when I blow it, I have to sin against him because as David said, against thee and thee only have I sinned, O God. Now, about confessing to other people, the Bible says confess your faults one to another. There's a difference between sin and faults. It is my view, Randy, and there are people who disagree with me on this, but it's my view that we should only confess our sins to people that we've sinned against. Uh, if I have gossiped about somebody, if I've lied to somebody or stolen from somebody, I need to go to that person. I can't just go to God and say, well, forgive me of all my sins, Lord. We've got to go make it right with people as best that we're able. Now, here's the problem with the people that say, no, we've got to bear our souls to everybody. You know, people will come up to you and say, you know, I held a grudge against you for 10 years. And I'm just asking you to forgive me. I didn't know they had a grudge. I'm better off not knowing that kind of stuff. So sometimes we look at confession as sort of an opportunity to cleanse our soul of everything that's burdening us. And I think that's a very selfish use of confession. What I've learned to do, when God has forgiven me of my sins, and maybe it was a sin that somebody doesn't even know, 
about, uh, you know, I, I, I held something against them, I judged them, or, or something like that, but they never would know about it. Well, Jesus says, my sin as far as for me is from east and west, in the deepest, darkest ocean. So there's no reason for me to go excavating and get it out. If I make things right with God and I haven't really offended somebody because they don't know that there was an offense, then it's better just to leave it where it was and change your behavior toward that person. So yes, we need to confess our sins to God and we need to confess to those people that we have sinned against uh, when we have inflicted pain. Thank you very much. Here is our last question of the day. This is from Marv, and this is the other Seventh-day Adventist question that I hinted at earlier. Do you recommend the ministry of Doug Batchelor? Um, Marv, no, I don't. He's a Seventh-day Adventist. Um, that's legalism, um, bordering on, on cultism. Um, I don't know that much about Doug Batchelor. I have seen him on my cable um, a, a couple times um, early Sunday mornings he has a program that comes on and uh, I've, I've tuned in and wondered a little bit about him but he is a Seventh-day Adventist and I cannot with a clear conscience recommend anything uh, that's uh, Seventh-day Adventist it's just wrong, it's poor scholarship it's dishonest um, um, scholarship it, it's just not something that I can do he has a very pleasing style He, I'm sure he's the nicest guy in the world and I'm pretty sure he's a real believer and we'll be in heaven together. Uh, but if we start confusing the Sabbath, uh, if we start being bound by legalism, then we're really, really missing the boat. So no, I don't recommend him at all. Hope that helps. Well, there's the music. I thought I had time for maybe one more, but I didn't. Thanks for tuning in today. This has been the Tuesday program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. You've been listening to the words of Stand Up for Life. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.